Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, minstrel shows were popular at the University of Florida in the 1910s. For students interested in music, this was one of the main ways that they could do that, and it was described as practically the only student dramatic attempt at University of Florida. We'll discuss a lawsuit that challenged Jim Crow segregation in Florida. Ms. Brookins' experience was one that was all too familiar to middle and upper class black travelers. And we'll visit the historically black Stanton High School in Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the Confederate anthem Dixie, recorded in 1916 during America's Jim Crow era. The song was a staple of minstrel shows where some members of all-white casts would perform as stereotypical caricatures of black people. Miles Sullivan is a Ph.D. student in the anthropology department at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Sullivan wrote the article Amateur Minstrel Shows and Blackface Amusements at the University of Florida in the Jim Crow Era, appearing in Volume 99 of the Florida Historical Quarterly. The topic of minstrelsy and blackface minstrelsy is very complicated, and there's been um, a lot of research uh, done on it. But one of the things that stood out to me when I first came across these shows, which appear in, actually, they were recently digitized as of 2019, the student newspaper at University of Florida did a full digitization of the newspaper and just searching um, for topics for a seminar class on uh, Jim Crow America. I stumbled across these shows in the 1910s. When I started looking more into the history of minstrelsy in America, you get a different picture of the antebellum minstrel shows with what's occurring at UF. One, because of that amateur nature of the shows. These are sort of local shows that were spurred on by students and faculty at the UF put on for Gainesville, those are people of Gainesville, as a way to display student talent. And at the same time, it was a fundraiser. While the heyday of minstrel shows was in the 1800s, Sullivan discovered that the popularity of amateur minstrel shows in Gainesville grew in the 1910s. At this point, um, a lot of min professional minstrel shows were going bankrupt after their initial popularity in the 19th century. There's a few sort of stragglers left in the 1910s, but a lot of sort of the research focus on minstrelsy by the 1910s, you're looking at Birth of a Nation in cinema and these other sort of new novel forms of entertainment that are coming out. 
But at the same time, across America, there seems to be a lot of organizations and clubs and schools, churches, were putting on amateur blackface minstrel shows. Why were these organizations a lot of times exclusively for white individuals? Why were they all putting on these sort of racialized performances where racial caricatures of African-American, you know, music, song, dance, and even speech? Initially, the minstrel shows presented at the University of Florida were held to raise money to build bleacher seats for the new football stadium. So that's another sort of linkage, like the first seats at a stadium that today can seat 80,000 people was coming through this sort of racialized entertainment, which is sort of strange to think about these kind of linkages um, between this kind of entertainment as a way to fundraise that has started with these early practices of blackface. So looking through sort of documents, which includes uh, the yearbooks, the primary uh, sort of focus was the student newspaper, the Florida Alligator. And then also oral histories that were collected from students. And some of these were, most of these were done by um, Samuel Proctor in the 1970s and 60s. And sort of getting at what people were saying, writing and talking about and how they remembered these shows to get an idea of one, what exactly was happening on these stages. And then, so what were the impacts of local performances of these blackface caricatures in Gainesville and in Northern Florida? Sullivan says that the minstrel shows at the newly established University of Florida were a way for the school to connect with the local community. One thing to note is that this was really that sort of aspect of community engagement because the University of Florida had recently arrived to Gainesville with following the Buckman Act in 1906. And so this is the first shows in 1914 were only eight years after that. And so this was a sort of a way of engaging with the town And there had been precedents actually in Gainesville itself. East Florida Seminary had put on a a minstrel show in the 1900s, as well as sort of a local society as a fundraiser as well. Performing arts programs were not a high priority in the early days at the University of Florida. And Sullivan says that minstrel shows provided rare performance opportunities for students. For students interested in music, this was one of the main ways that they could do that. And it was described as practically the only student dramatic attempt at University of Florida. So this is really a primary focus for people interested in theater and music and acting. This was pretty much about the only opportunity that they had outside of forming their own dance bands and stuff like that, which actually happened. You know, people played in the minstrel shows and then would form bands and play jazz music for dances and stuff. Sullivan found that the minstrel shows that the University of Florida sponsored were variety shows, and not everyone was in blackface. There was the N-Men who were in blackface, and actually two of these people were locals from Gainesville, and one, uh, Jay Fletcher Burnett, was actually, you know, in 1920, he was the president of the Rotary Club. So these are well-known people in town and well-respected socially. And again, this was an opportunity for students to meet locals and work with them and then put on this show. And then also when they were doing, they started doing tours across the state. So they went to Ocala, they went to Tampa, they went to Jacksonville, Orlando. And in total, there was between 1914 and 1920, there were 33 shows that were sort of under this name, the Greater Florida Minstrels of Students. The key thing here is that, you know, not everybody was in blackface. And so that there was these serious sort of ballad singers They had like the gymnastics team would do a performance, but interspersed with ballads were these end men who would insert jokes, sing sort of blues songs and um, 
a style of minstrelsy that was popular at that time under the name of coon songs, they would perform these songs and that's how they were described in the newspaper and sort of known caricatures that were often used were, you know, they were thieves that would steal chickens and were lazy and have a razor that they could slash people with and be violent. And so we're getting these two images of, um, you know, these comic scenes of blackface and these more violent scenes interspersed between sort of maybe regular pop songs Sullivan's interest in folk music was what initially brought him to his study of minstrel shows. He says the casts were mostly performing the current popular songs of the day. What you see is actually they're playing songs that were published by Tintan Alley publishers not a year or two years earlier. These are new songs that are being performed, and that's a selling point of the show. People don't want to see songs that are 50 or 60 years old or maybe not even 10 years old. These are being billed as up-to-date, snappy tunes. And these are songs that are popular nationwide from some of the people that have looked at sort of aggregates of popular music at that time. A lot of these were high selling um, in sheet music sales. But nonetheless, in terms of the racial imagery, sort of one scene stands out in 1920 from a show in Jacksonville is they're still nonetheless billed as old time, the old time minstrel shows, how it's described. And they're even in this 1920 show, for example, they're employing ideas of what Dixie is. And so they start the show as, and it's described as a, you know, old time show, a song that was called Dixie is Dixie once more that was celebrating the end of World War One, and the return of uh, soldiers from World War One. And it mentions the Swanee Shore, so the Swanee River in Florida, but it's written by a person from New York. And it's sort of celebrating the work of student veterans who are coming back and painting them in context of the old South, the antebellum South, that was sort of being put up in this nostalgic tradition at this time. And then at the end of the show, they also had to do another recently released song called Who Discovered Dixie? That again is drawing on these sort of old South notions of the old plantation homes. And then they're putting on what they described as a plantation jubilee, where they actually draw on... Um, some of those older minstrel songs in addition to this newer song as sort of the big finale. And so in this instance, right after World War I, at the time when there's increased agitation by Black Floridians for their civil rights, is we're seeing this sort of melding of the Old South and the New South on stage in this really locally enacted performance that is sort of mustered together by a local community and put on for a local community. In the first three decades of the 20th century, Florida had the highest per capita rate of lynching in the United States. Sullivan draws a connection between minstrel shows of the 1910s and racial violence as public spectacle. How that connects to the rest of um, the Jim Crow Florida at that time is this idea of humor in entertainment and that blackface, as it's locally enacted, is an object of entertainment and humor. And then we're also seeing that in much more explicitly uh, violent actions like the lynchings in Florida, which were at an all-time high in the state, and this idea of spectacle lynchings, where this becomes a performance. And in a similar avenue that we're having these blackface entertainments on stage is that this performance element that's generated from a community level is also occurring in these sort of popular acts of justice. Sullivan says that, unfortunately, blackface is not a thing of the past. We're still seeing this today in terms of menstrual blackface in academic settings, even at UF. 
there's cases up through the 60s and 70s. There was uh, fraternities putting on benefit shows. And then yesterday, my roommate was telling me about a person in Oregon protesting a vaccine mandate by showing up to school dressed as Rosa Parks in blackface. So this is something that keeps getting sort of reiterated um, in society and sort of has in some ways sort of been positioned within academic settings more so than um, popular culture and the theater in some ways, though that's still um, prevalent as well. Miles Sullivan is a PhD student at UF. His article, Amateur Minstrel Shows and Blackface Amusements at the University of Florida in the Jim Crow Era, appears in volume 99 of the Florida Historical Quarterly. He discussed his research at the 2021 Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium, which is archived online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you'll find lots of free content, including archives of this program and our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, in your role as Director of Riches, you spend a lot of time collecting oral histories from members of the community. I heard that you recently participated in a very unusual one. Yes, I did. The oral history was conducted at the Hannibal Square Heritage Center by Ms. Farrellyn Livingston a masterful oral historian whose work in Central Florida has earned multiple awards and recognitions from Rollins College and the Orange County Regional History Center. She and Kim Mould, a Winter Park historian, had invited the richest team to record the oral history of Deborah Kirby and make it public. Ms. Kirby is a retired nurse whose Hannibal Square roots go back several generations. Born and reared in Hannibal Square, 
Miss Kirby is the great-granddaughter of Washington Strotter and his wife, Edith. Mr. Strotter was quite prominent in the Hannibal Square neighborhood of Winter Park as a farmer and grove owner and as a dealer in real estate. Were the Strotters the focus of the oral history? No, the focus was on Blanche Brookins, the Strotters' daughter, and Ms. Kirby's grandmother. Ms. Brookins, who was married to Gilbert Brookins, a property manager for a northern resident of Winter Park, became the center of widespread newspaper attention and earned a place in national legal history in the late 1920s when she challenged Jim Crow segregation. At the time of the precipitating incident in July 1926, Ms. Brookins was the mother of a two-year-old daughter named Eleanor, and she was almost six months pregnant with her second child. Mother and daughter were returning to Orange County from an extended stay in New York with Ms. Brookins' sister. Blanche Brookins purchased a first-class ticket for a Pullman sleeping car in New York for her trip south. Mother and daughter boarded the train and traveled without incident until they reached Jacksonville. The pair were ordered to leave first class and move to the Jim Crow or colored car. Ms. Brookins refused to do so. Jacksonville Railroad officials telegraphed ahead to Palatka to request that Ms. Brookins be removed from the train and arrested. Two policemen were waiting for the train. They arrested her and took Ms. Brookins and her daughter to jail. Ms. Kirby noted that her grandmother and mother were not placed in a cell but were kept at the jail until the next morning when they appeared before Putnam County Judge J.C. Calhoun, who fined her $500 plus court costs. Her father and brother arrived at the courthouse before the hearing and were prepared to pay the fine and costs in cash. According to Ms. Kirby, a young policeman expressed his amazement that a black family could pay such a large fine and that they would have the cash to do so when the banks had not yet opened. His older colleague pointed to the clothing of Ms. Brookins and her daughter and earrings the mother wore and stated that he believed they were capable of paying the fine and more. Ms. Kirby inherited the earrings from her grandmother and she wore them to the interview. The story of the arrest and fine was reported in the February 1927 issue of The Crisis, the monthly magazine of the NAACP. Ms. Brookins' experience was one that was all too familiar to middle- and upper-class black travelers. The Jim Crow segregation laws required black passengers to travel at the rear of urban public transportation, such as streetcars, and in especially designated Jim Crow cars on trains. Uncomfortable and dirty, the cars were also used as smoking cars for men of all races, a space where they could drink, smoke, and play card games, not a suitable place for women. As historian Robert Casanello's research shows, blacks protested the substandard accommodations, claiming the right to purchase first-class tickets and ride in first-class cars. In making these demands, they asserted public recognition of their own respectability. But white supremacy judged on the basis of skin color and offered no recognition of class, education, or respectability if the skin was black. That's an amazing story. 
Standing up for her rights in the Jim Crow South must have been an inspiration for her family and her community, but I don't think I've ever heard that story. In 1981, Gerald H. Schaffner cited the Palatka incident in a Florida Historical Quarterly article using a newspaper account that appeared in the New York Age. But what he didn't know, or didn't use in the article, was that the story did not end with the payment of the fine and the return to Hannibal Square. Ms. Brookins' New York sister filed a complaint with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. After investigating the incident, the NAACP supported the filing of a lawsuit, Brookins versus Atlantic Coast Line Railroad, in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. A suit was also filed against the Pullman Company, the manufacturer of the rail car in which Ms. Brookins had been riding. The plaintiff demanded damages of $25,000. She was represented by Arthur Garfield Hayes of the New York firm of Hayes, St. John's, and Buckley, Clarence Darrow, who in 1925 defended John Scopes in the famous Scopes trial at Dayton, Tennessee, was co-counsel. In January 1929, the Crisis Magazine reported that Ms. Brookins was awarded $2,750 by the court in her successful suit. Attorney Hayes noted, quote, Passengers in interstate traffic are not subject to Jim Crow regulation of southern states without equal accommodation being furnished by the railroad, end quote. Perhaps influenced by the example of her grandmother, Miss Kirby stood up for her rights as well. A member of the first integrated class at Winter Park High School, she was also a part of the first integrated class at Florida State University, where she joined other students in demanding the creation of a black student union, a goal that had been achieved by the time she graduated from FSU. This important oral history documents the multi-generational strength of a black family as they challenge the limitations imposed by Jim Crow. A fascinating story. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Jacksonville's Stanton School is one of Florida's most endangered historic buildings. Holly Baker has more. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2021's 11 to Save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Abandoned African American cemeteries statewide are included on the list. 
Cemeteries are important cultural and historical sites that are vulnerable to destruction from development, vandalism, and the passage of time. African-American cemeteries in Florida have been especially at risk of being destroyed or erased. Christine Dalton is a historic preservation and community planning specialist and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. This year, we chose to list abandoned African-American cemeteries statewide. We have uh, quite an issue in the state of Florida with abandoned African-American cemeteries because oftentimes there are questions regarding ownership of the property, who actually owns the cemetery, so who's actually responsible for maintaining the cemetery. In 2019, two forgotten cemeteries in Tampa were discovered with ground-penetrating radar. And there was approximately 200 graves at the cemetery, and it was buried and forgotten under a public housing complex and warehouse. So these cemeteries were basically plowed over and developed over. Further research uncovered five additional forgotten African-American cemeteries in the Tampa Bay area. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. The ugly history regarding the fate of many segregation-era African-American cemeteries was really highlighted in, in 2019 when two forgotten cemeteries in the Tampa area were rediscovered. For those in the African-American community, uh, such as myself, this news was not really surprising or unique. As horrible as these Tampa discoveries sound, there are examples of abandoned disgrace, uh, desecrated and disturbed cemeteries all over the state of Florida. For example, in Jacksonville, Mount Hermon Cemetery was developed around 1880 to serve as the final resting place for what was then the city's rapidly growing Black community uh, during Reconstruction. In 1941, this same cemetery was deeded to the city with a requirement that it be used either as a public cemetery or a park. Well, by 1949, it's described in local papers as being an overgrown vacant lot with high weeds. Well, by 1969, this burial ground had been converted into a public park. However, it still retains visual reminders of being a cemetery, including uh, one headstone being located in the middle of a public street next to the park. Cemeteries can reveal information about a person's history, family, and religious beliefs. Headstones themselves are valuable historical records, particularly for African Americans who often don't have a lot of documentation of their ancestors' lives. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation hopes that inclusion of African American cemeteries on the 2021 11 to Save list will help bring attention to their importance and the need for their preservation. Ennis Davis. A burial ground task force that was mobilized by the state legislator in 1998 reported that more than 40 to 50% of the state's cemeteries are either neglected or abandoned. And that across the state, there could be more than 3,000 unpreserved African-American cemeteries. So with that in mind, in June of this year, Governor DeSantis signed into law House Bill 37, which is intended to identify law cemeteries by establishing a task force on abandoned African-American cemeteries. And uh, this task force will create a panel of researchers to study forgotten or abandoned African-American cemeteries and burial grounds across the state. And so the inclusion of African-American cemeteries to this year's 11 to Save list uh, was done with the intent to help increase public awareness of the statewide effort to bring honor and dignity to historic sites that have been long uh, forgotten 
and in many cases, intentionally erased from public records altogether. To learn more about the Florida Trust and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.